The baaing of the sheep was almost unbearable, a low roar that filled the air, interspersed with the occasional yowl or cry of protest. Thousands of the animals were crammed together in the pastures just outside the city walls, driven dozens or even hundreds of miles from their grazing spots all over the countryside by their shepherds. Most of them had already had their wool plucked, great tufts coming off by the handful, hot and unpleasant work made easier by the cool spring breezes rolling over the alluvial plains of Mesopotamia. A few, the unlucky, had already been slaughtered, their hides removed and remains butchered to make a series of fine meals. The scribe cursed as the fleeced hem of his long woolen skirt dragged through a pile of fresh manure. He waited impatiently for the man in the shorter, tufted skirt, a much fancier garment, to finish his conversation with one of the shepherds. Twirling a reed stylus in one hand, holding a lump of malleable clay in the other, the scribe was ready to record the quantities and qualities of wool collected here today. When the man finished, he listed a series of weights, minas, and grades of wool. Using the stylus, the scribe impressed a series of wedges and lines into the wet clay. Stepping carefully around further piles of sheep dung to avoid ruining his already dirty skirt, the scribe left the pastures. He walked under the tall, mud-brick city walls, through the gate, and along the winding streets until he reached the edge of the temple complex. It too had walls, tall ones, that shut it off from the outside world, but traffic was constant. Braying donkeys laden with bales of wool competed for space with supplicants, bringing a fine lamb for sacrifice to the goddess who dwelled in the temple's innermost sanctum. The scribe weaved through the traffic at the gates and then passed through the hubbub of the cloth workers' section of the complex. The hammering and chiseling of the stone workers assaulted his ears. At last, stepping through one more doorway, the scribe reached the inner layers of the temple complex. He narrowly avoided colliding with a high-ranking temple administrator as he rounded the corner, the man distinguished by his well-oiled beard and brightly colored, elaborately tufted woolen skirt. Bowing, the scribe handed over the impressed clay tablet with its record of wool collected from the flocks belonging to the goddess's temple. The goddess was well provided for, said the administrator, smiling as he read over the quantities recorded on the clay. Bowing again, the scribe turned to leave, casting a look in the direction of the goddess's sanctum. A flash of light reflected off the golden rings and headdress that decorated her wooden statue. But despite spending his whole adult life in service to the temple, this was as close as he would ever come to the goddess herself. He was not a religious specialist, just a scribe. He served the temple, the temple provided for the goddess, and the goddess protected their city and made it prosper. That was as it should be. Mesopotamia has been called the cradle of civilization, the place where cities, states, written laws, and much of what we associate with our more modern way of life came into being. Now, this isn't strictly true, but more than 4,000 years ago, Mesopotamia was a dazzling and compelling place, one of the most sophisticated and densely populated on the planet. Thanks to the invention of writing, we can start to see inside this long-lost civilization and understand the lives and work of the people who called it home. The decades around the year 1500 were an incredibly tumultuous time. Ever more destructive conflicts rocked Western Europe, new world empires fell at the hands of the conquistadors, and the religious consensus of Christendom was forever shattered. My new book, The Verge, Reformation, Renaissance, and 40 Years That Shook the World, 
explores these processes through the lives of real people, from famous figures like Christopher Columbus and the Ottoman Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent to lesser-known people like a one-armed German mercenary and a ruthless English merchant. In the long run, these eventful decades set the stage for the future European domination of the world. In the short term, they ripped the continent apart at the seams. The Verge is available now wherever you get your books and audiobooks, including Amazon and Audible. True Love is a new fiction podcast from Wondery that explores scandalous flings, secret affairs, and the drama that ensues through reimagined stories about love, lust, and heartbreak. Follow True Love on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen now by subscribing to Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. Before we get started, a reminder that when you join Wondery Plus, you can listen to Tides of History one week early and ad-free in the Wondery app. Also, I have some really cool news. I wrote a book. It's called The Verge, Reformation, Renaissance, and 40 Years That Shook the World. If you enjoyed our seasons of Tides of History on the early modern period, then you'll like this, I promise. Go order a hard copy, ebook, or audiobook, which I'm reading, naturally, from your distributor of choice. There's a link in this episode description that will help you do that. If you've ever been looking for a way to support Tides of History, ordering The Verge is the best way to do it. I'd really appreciate it. There's a link in this episode description that will take you there. Hi, everybody. From Wondery, welcome to another episode of Tides of History. I'm Patrick Wyman. Thanks for joining me. Mesopotamia was one of the heartlands of the ancient world. The cities studding the fertile banks of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers produced kings and legends, art and literature, cuneiform writing, and enormous monumental buildings— these cities formed the core of a civilization that lasted for thousands and thousands of years. Babylon was already ancient when Rome was nothing more than a collection of huts near the Tiber, even when Athens' Acropolis held a Mycenaean palace rather than the Parthenon and its neighbors. But Babylon was a mere provincial village when Uruk was already thousands of years old. The sheer scale of time in Mesopotamia, as in ancient Egypt, is hard to imagine. In comparison to other places in the ancient world, we know so much about it, too. We have the results of decades of excavations in the arid plains of Iraq, aerial surveys, and last but certainly not least, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of cuneiform texts regarding everything from commercial transactions to the deeds of great and terrible kings. We can know things about Mesopotamia that are simply invisible in the pre-literate societies of the Eurasian steppe, the Olmecs of Mesoamerica, and China before the Shang Dynasty. But simply because we can know so much about Mesopotamia, and this also goes for Egypt, there's a tendency to make it the star of the show, the centerpiece of the ancient world. Historians and popular writers work with what they have. In Mesopotamia and Egypt, we have a lot, so we can do a lot. On a more insidious note, Textbooks hold Mesopotamia up as the standard against which everything else is compared, the root from which all development and evolution spread outward. One of the classic books on Sumer, which was one of the constituent parts of Mesopotamia, is entitled History Begins at Sumer. Mesopotamia is the cradle of civilization, the wellspring of all the good stuff we associate with a better world, like writing, cities, and the state. As we've been talking about prehistory and the dawn of quote-unquote civilization here on Tides of History, I've tried very hard not to fall into this trap. First of all, the dawn of what we call civilization wasn't exactly great for everybody involved in that process. The iconic image of the pharaoh in even pre-dynastic Egypt involved him bashing a captive over the head with his mace. 
The most common sign in the early proto-cuneiform written material at Uruk is female captive of foreign origin. Living in early cities probably wasn't all that good for your health, either. Looking at Egypt and Mesopotamia as the sterling examples of human achievement in this period gives us a really flawed framework. Second, and more important, the vast, overwhelming majority of the people who were actually alive in the 4th, 3rd, and 2nd millennia BC didn't live in Egypt or Mesopotamia. This was a big, diverse, and populous world. There were urban centers along the Pacific coast of South America, in the Indus Valley, and in China. Creative agriculturalists were digging sophisticated drainage systems to farm the highland valleys of New Guinea. We can see the outlines of complex new political formations rising in Bronze Age Europe. World-altering new technologies were being invented and disseminated in the vastness of the Eurasian steppe and the islands of maritime Southeast Asia. Even right along the fringes of Mesopotamia, in the highlands of Iran and the Caucasus and the Sebi deserts of Central Asia, there were really interesting and impactful things happening. The same goes for Egypt with Nubia, for that matter. But this isn't to say that these famous civilizations didn't matter in their time, or that they didn't leave a real and important legacy to the future. That's absolutely not the case. What I am saying is that when we understand the societies that existed around and beyond these famous ancient civilizations, the other stuff that was happening in the distant past, we can better understand what made the famous civilizations unique and meaningful. They were part of their time. Things that happened elsewhere affected them, just as their influence spread outward through a whole variety of means. They didn't stand apart from their world, just waiting to bequeath their legacy to a better future. They were connected to it. When we cut out Mesopotamia and make it some unique cradle of civilization, we fundamentally distort our picture of both the society we're investigating and the world it was tied to. So, with all that said, let's talk about Mesopotamia. We're going to spend the next three episodes focusing on the lands around the Tigris and the Euphrates, the incredibly fertile, densely populated, and fractious core territory that really was the source of innovations and ways of doing things that have left a long and complex legacy. Today, we'll talk about the characteristics that made Mesopotamia stand out in its time. Cities, a hyper-specialized economy, the prevalence of the written word, and highly developed political and social structures. Hopefully, this will give us some insight into what it was like to actually live there. These people lived hard lives, focused around work of all kinds and types, specialized and controlled in rigid, hierarchical relationships that tied them to powerful people and institutions. And after this, we'll cover the long period of war and rivalry between cities that eventually produced the world's first empires, a more traditional kind of history, I think. So, when we last left Mesopotamia, we were in the late Uruk period, in the last couple of centuries of the 4th millennium BC, right around 3100 BC. At this point, the city of Uruk was probably the largest urban formation in the world, with a population somewhere in the range of 50,000 people. It had not just monumental buildings, but whole monumental districts, with temples, palaces, even aqueduct-fed gardens. Proto-cuneiform writing had probably been invented in Uruk, and quite possibly the first state structures. The city had been the heart of some really stunning developments. We see an extremely hierarchical society, with a division of labor that went beyond kinship groups and tribal structures, and a sophisticated economy with complex chains of production, imports, and exports. 
even more, this went far beyond Uruk itself, which was the center of a major expansion. Perhaps political, perhaps military, perhaps predatory, perhaps colonizing. That definitely involved long-distance trade and the procurement of valuable imports from distant lands. What we call the Uruk phenomenon stretched far beyond the floodplains of southern Mesopotamia. Settlements built on the exact pattern of Uruk and its neighbors show up in what are now Syria and eastern Turkey, filled with the same kind of material culture we see at Uruk itself. People probably moved outward from southern Mesopotamia, building colonies that remained connected to their homeland. That was probably the case in the Susiana Plain of western Iran, for example, and at Tel Hamukar in eastern Syria. An ugly, mass-produced pottery vessel called the Beveled Rim Bowl, which may have been used to distribute state grain rations or even as a bread mold, was even more widely distributed. We see them at those sites in Syria and Turkey, in the Zagros Mountains of Iran, even as far east as Pakistan, often in enormous numbers. We can interpret these ugly beveled rim bowls, which make up as much as 80% of the pottery assemblages on Uruk sites, as representative pieces of the Uruk cultural, political, and economic package. They're evidence of a hierarchical, specialized, and widespread way of life. Uruk society had elites at the top, captive laborers at the bottom, winners and losers, people who gave the orders, and people who obeyed them. Yet the Uruk phenomenon didn't last long. By the closing years of the fourth millennium, by around 3100 BC, Uruk influence retreated from these far-flung outposts. Whether we should interpret that as the disintegration or contraction of a political unit, a population expansion, a trading network backed up with military force, some combination of all of them, well, that's up for debate. But it's clear that this contraction happened. A relatively brief and little understood stretch of time followed that, called the Jemdet Nasr period after its best-known site from about 3100 to 2900 BC. But we can say a great deal more about the subsequent period, what's called the Early Dynastic Period, which lasted from 2900 BC to 2350 BC. That is a really long stretch, and it was a fractious time, when a whole collection of Mesopotamian cities made war on each other over and over and over— fighting for control over trade routes and for the prestige of their rulers. They did this constantly. Very rarely were there periods of peace lasting longer than a couple of years at a time. But what's fascinating is that these cities fought and politicked and backstabbed within a broadly shared framework of political institutions, a system of writing and record-keeping, social organization, and especially trade. They saw themselves as equals, roughly speaking, and cooperated regularly even as they fought and quarreled. They collaborated commercially. People or institutions in one city might hold land in the territory of another, as the rulers of Nippur and Adab did in the city of Zabala at the end of the early dynastic period. Thanks to recent discoveries and excavations, we know that this framework of trading and interaction stretched way beyond Mesopotamia itself. It is southwestern Iran, which we talked about last time, Upper Mesopotamia along the Tigris and Euphrates, Syria, even beyond. All of these places were tied into this web of relationships centered on the great cities of Mesopotamia proper, places like Uruk, Ur, Lagash, Kish, and many more. As the early dynastic period wore on, we can see a clear trend toward unification, as cities and their ruling dynasties established short-lived control over neighboring urban centers. 
This eventually culminated in the emergence of Sargon of Akkad and the first true empire in world history. Let's take a step back, though. I've mentioned cities a number of times here, and we need to talk a bit more about them. You see, cities defined the society, culture, economy, and politics of Mesopotamia in this period and well beyond. They were what made it special. They were what made it stand out in comparison to its neighbors and in comparison to practically everywhere else on the planet. To be clear, there were cities elsewhere. In Egypt, in the Indus Valley, on the Iranian Plateau, in Central Asia, many other places. There were probably more people overall living in the Indus Valley than in Mesopotamia. But where Mesopotamia was unique, especially during this early dynastic period, was in the scale and extent of urbanization. By one estimate, at the end of the early dynastic period, around 2350 BC, a roughly 80% of Mesopotamia's population lived in an urban site of 40 hectares or more. That is an absolutely incredible proportion. By comparison, the highest proportion for the most densely populated European regions in the 15th and 16th centuries AD was around 40 to 50%. That's in the Low Countries and northern Italy. So even if there were more people living in the Indus Valley, they were much more tightly crammed together in Mesopotamia. One city's territory butted right up against the next, and the next, and the next, and the next, for a couple of hundred miles along the lower and middle stretches of the Tigris and Euphrates. Even if that 80% number is too high, or at least a little bit misleading, and I think it is, the fact that we're talking about the 3rd millennium BC here is just mind-boggling. And even if our sense for the raw proportion of urban dwellers is off, what's clear is that this was the peak of urbanization in Mesopotamia for thousands of years to follow. More people lived in cities during the early dynastic period than had before or would again for millennia to come. There were tons of them, more than 30 cities, all with their local particularities and identities. Uruk, Ur, Adab, Uma, Lagash, Kish, Girsu, Nippur, and still more. They could grow to incredible sizes. Uruk was perhaps twice as large during the early dynastic period as it had been during the Uruk period that was named for it a thousand years earlier. It wasn't even the biggest city in Mesopotamia during the early dynastic period. What's more, and probably more important, is that the people of Mesopotamia understood their world as one of cities. The city was the thing that helped them understand who they were and where they belonged, their sense of space and location. It gave them their specific gods and kings, their very sense of self. Why? Why did so many people live in cities during this time? Why were they the focal points of the political, economic, and cultural order? We shouldn't take that for granted. For most of human history, cities have been the exception rather than the rule, rare things that stick out in the midst of mostly rural landscapes. Remember, everybody who lives permanently in a city is somebody who isn't out there plowing fields or working rice paddies or herding cattle or sheep. In other words, engaging in the food production that keeps people from starving to death. On top of that, pretty much all cities prior to the 19th or even 20th centuries were net consumers of population rather than producers of them. More people died in cities than were born in them. The proportions varied from place to place and time to time. Victorian London was probably worse than 16th century Istanbul. Imperial Rome worse than Harappa of the Indus Valley civilization. But the basic dynamics always held true. 
So cities, by their nature, require surplus, both in food and in people. Where did the food and the people come from? How did these cities even exist, and why? I've been trying really hard lately to expand my reading horizons and get out of the same subjects and genres I've spent years thinking about. Literati is absolutely perfect for that. A whole series of book clubs for folks with expansive tastes, where you can read alongside the world's most inspiring authors and leaders. Literati delivers their monthly book picks straight to your door, so you can spend less time finding a good book and more time actually reading one. Whether you're enjoying beach reads with Ellen Hildebrand or exploring mythic realms with Joseph Campbell scholars, you'll find their brilliant insights on the Literati app. They also host exclusive interviews with the authors themselves, where you can ask your biggest questions and get the insider answers you won't find in any other book club. Move freely between clubs or use the standard membership to access everything and choose the books you want delivered. Reimagine what a book club can be. Redeem your 30-day trial for only 99 cents at literati.com tides. Head to literati.com tides to learn more and read more with Literati. Literati.com tides. Business is battle, and there's always somebody else out there willing to do the same thing faster or cheaper or better than you can. I'm David Brown, the host of the Business Wars podcast from Wondery. And on each season of Business Wars, you'll be treated to stories of legendary corporate battles. Learn the very heart of each rivalry and unearth all the valuable lessons to be found there. You'll get to hear all about fights between companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin, TikTok versus Instagram, Nike and Adidas, and so many more. Remember when home entertainment was ruled by Blockbuster Video? We've got the story of how Netflix swooped in and left them in the dust. Do you prefer Chick-fil-A over KFC? Check out our season all about the fast food giants fighting for your attention and your appetite. Learn the unbelievably true stories of how today's biggest businesses got to where they are, the fighting that goes on behind the scenes, and just how the best companies rise to the top. Listen to Business Wars on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen one week early and ad-free. It's hard to overstate how fertile the farmland of Mesopotamia really is. Now, much of Mesopotamia is arid or even desert, but the Tigris and Euphrates rivers feed a vast alluvial plain. When they overspill their banks in a flood or the rivers carve new channels, both of which happen regularly— the rivers deposit huge amounts of fertile silt. Farmers in Mesopotamia very early on developed a beautifully ingenious system for maximizing the productivity of the available land. They planted the most water-intensive crops, like palm trees or flax, right along the riverbanks, but then they dug short irrigation channels leading outward. These short irrigation channels, maybe a mile long, watered the fields of grain that provided the vast bulk of the food. The drier and more distant land could be used for grazing animals. The marshes that grew up around the slow-moving rivers and at the head of the Persian Gulf were full of fish, waterfowl, and plants. When these various resources were combined, an incredible and diverse bounty was available within a really short distance. This was the surplus, or rather the potential surplus, that fed the cities of Mesopotamia, and which allowed so many people to do things other than grow crops. But what about the people? Where did they come from? Well, a lot of them must have come from the countryside, where fertility rates were higher than in the cities themselves. People living in cities probably had fewer children than their rural counterparts to begin with. 
Drawing on cross-cultural comparisons of pre-modern cities, it's likely that infant mortality rates were higher in cities than in the countryside, too. But the countryside still wasn't enough to be the only source. One of the interesting things we see is that urbanization rates in southern Mesopotamia, the area we're mostly concerned with here, were inversely correlated with urbanization in northern Mesopotamia and southwestern Iran. When there were more people living in cities like Uruk, Ur, and Lagash, there were fewer people living in Susa, for example. So at least part of this urbanization boom was the product of people moving a considerable way within the region, not just short distances from the countryside. This wasn't necessarily by choice. We see plenty of evidence for forced migrations of people, taking war captives or slaves, and transplanting them back into the cities of southern Mesopotamia. This shows up constantly in our sources as something kings were proud of, and the scale grew as time passed into the second and first millennia BC, culminating in the massive forced movements of later Near Eastern empires, like the Neo-Assyrians. Not all migrations to cities were forced, though. I mentioned a little while ago that the cities were constantly at war with one another throughout this period. War meant armies rolling through, burning crops and villages, killing or enslaving the inhabitants. It was much safer to be sitting behind the walls of a big city. And there's good reason to think a lot of people left their rural homes for Uruk or Kish or Uma to avoid that fate. But along those lines, we shouldn't necessarily view urban-rural population splits as being fixed. A lot of people probably only lived in the cities for part of the year. At planting and harvesting time, they went out to the villages and worked the fields, or took the livestock out into the deserts to graze. When that work was done, they went to the cities to work as laborers, or in one of the industries that we'll talk about shortly. When the enemy armies came to their territories, they could flee behind the walls of the cities for safety, then return home to their villages when the danger had passed. In fact, this kind of regular back-and-forth movement might contribute to a mistaken sense of how deep urbanization really went. Cities will look bigger and more extensive than their permanent populations really were. Rural settlements would be harder to find, more ephemeral. If they only lived in the countryside part of the year, why would people build settlements with buildings of the kind that might leave major archaeological traces after four millennia? You're more likely to build reed huts or maybe small mud-brick dwellings— you wouldn't leave as much identifiable refuse behind, and so on. But the upshot of all this concentration of people in the cities was incredible economic growth and dynamism. One of the most eminent scholars of Mesopotamia in this period, Guillermo Algaze, has written extensively about the sheer scale of activity that these cities enabled. From Algaze's perspective, they're a strong example of what we call Smithian growth, where the growth and concentration of people enabled economic specialization and economies of scale. Having so many people packed so close together enabled even small and seemingly minor innovations to pass from person to person and place to place. Nearby cities provided ready markets for manufactured goods, like textiles, which were a business of enormous scale in Mesopotamia. The more complex the industries, the more ancillary goods were needed, creating their own cycles of demand and production. So let's take textiles as an example, something Algaze focuses a great deal on. Woolen cloth and garments were probably the largest single industry in Mesopotamian cities, but textiles weren't a single activity. They were many, all of which were necessary, all of which reinforced one another and the city's place as the center of an economic world. Wool sheep hadn't always existed. Their particular trait, the woolly coat, was a pretty new innovation by the time of the Uruk phenomenon in the 4th millennium BC. 
Linen, which had been used before wool, came from the flax plant. Flax was incredibly water-intensive to grow, so switching to wool sheep freed up some of the most fertile and well-watered agricultural land for other things. Tending the wool sheep opened up new land to exploitation and created demand for shepherds. Plucking the wool took a huge amount of labor. So did transporting it, or the sheep themselves, to the cities. Once it got there, it had to be woven into cloth. Then it had to go through the fulling process, which required even more labor to bleach the newly woven cloth and treat it with sesame oil before washing it in water. A skilled laborer might spend six workdays fulling a single kilogram, 2.2 pounds of cloth. The fulling process in turn required labor and resources to grow the sesame seeds, produce the oil, and bring it to the city, and to gather the sodium-rich plants for burning to produce alkalis to bleach the cloth. Beyond that, there were markets for sheepskins, for the meat of the sheep, for dairy products from sheep's milk, and so on. Textiles were a huge deal in Mesopotamia. People marked their social status with the grades and decorations of woolen fabrics they wore, coarser and lower quality for the poor, and specific higher qualities and types of garments for royal or temple personnel. We're talking about millions and millions of sheep and thousands of laborers in each city working in this industry. It was a highly organized and structured business involving different types of labor and laborers, some of whom were not especially happy to be working in those circumstances. They were conscripts, prisoners of war, indebted people or slaves, Sometimes they tried to run away. Oppression and exploitation were at the heart of even this most basic industry. And textiles were just one industry. There was also metallurgy, the working of both exotic and utilitarian stone, woodworking. That last one is fascinating because Mesopotamia largely lacked timber. Some of it would have been imported. Cut logs floated all the way down the Tigris and Euphrates from the high country of Syria and eastern Turkey. But we also have evidence for tree plantations near the major cities. In essence, they grew the timber they needed right there, shortening the distance to another key resource. We can't forget about ceramics either. Not just the actual shaping and firing of the pots, but sourcing the clay and the temper and the fuel for the kilns as well. So even one city was an economic powerhouse. Having so many packed so close together on the floodplains of Mesopotamia made the region genuinely unique in the 3rd millennium BC. These cities drew in people, raw materials, and manufactured goods for thousands of miles in every direction. The Indus Valley in Central Asia, Anatolia in Syria, Egypt, the Persian Gulf, and the Iranian Plateau. They exported to these same places. Bolts of woolen cloth, the kind of thing that don't survive in the archaeological record, but finished metal items, ceramics, and more, all of them floating up and down the rivers, packed under the backs of donkeys for their long journeys. The wheels of trade and production were always turning on an enormous scale. On a basic level, this was what powered Mesopotamia, and that's why it stood out. But cities in Mesopotamia or anywhere else don't exist in some neat, tidy economic vacuum. They're not a simple product of abstract market forces, population movements, and the resulting agglomeration of people and resources. Cities are also creatures of cultural norms. David Wengro, whom I interviewed on Tides a few months ago about early Egypt, points to the attraction of living in cities in Mesopotamia in religious terms. The gods dwelled in the cities, which were places of abundance and surplus, while the countryside was distant from the gods and close to the possibility of deprivation. 
Not everybody who leaves their exurban or rural hometown today for the bright lights of New York or Los Angeles or London or what have you does so out of the rational economic calculation that they'll do better in the city. In ancient Mesopotamia, as perhaps today, there was a sense that cities were where things happened. But on top of that, cities are products of social organization and, above all, political structures. In Mesopotamia, these cities were also states. City-states, for lack of a better term, though perhaps not much like the city-states we're more used to in classical antiquity or Italy in the later Middle Ages. They had kings and broader elites who made policies, directed the actions of people below them on the social hierarchy for their own benefit, who extracted labor and resources to build their palaces and monuments, who sent out armies to conquer and ransack their neighbors and direct wealth and people back to their home cities. The state, the apparatus that these elites built and harnessed to control labor and resources, created the cities. Yet the cities also made the state, resulting in a feedback loop between state capacity and the growth of the increasingly powerful cities of Mesopotamia. Take irrigation as an example. Even small villages were perfectly capable of digging irrigation channels a mile long for their local use. It was pretty straightforward because the riverbanks were raised up above the level of the surrounding plain. Digging a ditch just meant letting the water run downward a little way. This patchwork of small canals and ditches made for a surprisingly varied and incredibly productive agricultural system stretching essentially downhill from the rivers themselves. But beyond the riverbanks, irrigation was much more labor-intensive. It meant digging ditches 10 or 20 miles long, 16 to 32 kilometers, even longer. Big ditches that required thousands of laborers and months or years of work. During the early dynastic period and beyond, Mesopotamian states increasingly engaged in projects like this. They essentially built the landscape that supported larger and larger cities. As we get into the third millennium BC and the early dynastic period, the floodplains of Mesopotamia grew more and more crowded with cities. Each of them was ruled by a king called Lugal, En, or Ensi. These kings were ambitious folks. They got more ambitious as time went on over the course of this long and eventful early dynastic period. Now, it would be easiest to tell the story of this period as one of the deeds of kings. That's the story the written cuneiform sources largely tell because the written sources we have were promoted by kings or with an eye to their approval. The rise and fall of dynasties are in fact what much of the written record actually consists of. That tells us a lot about how kings wanted to be seen, but they're not a direct guide to what they actually did or to the things that actually shaped life for the vast majority of Mesopotamia's inhabitants. If we want to understand this period, then we need to get beyond a straightforward recitation of what the written sources say. What was a king, really? And what did he rule? In 1904, the Olympics came to America for the first time. But before the Games arrived, a fierce battle raged over which city would host them. Hi, I'm Lindsey Graham, the host of Wondery Show American History Tellers. We take you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. Two great American cities strive to bring the first Olympics to U.S. soil, and athletes from all walks of life strive for a chance to compete in them. Listen to The Fight for the First U.S. Olympics from American History Tellers on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or the Wondery app. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen ad-free. First off, we really are talking about kings in the gendered sense of the term. Mesopotamian society had pretty rigid gender rules, and the Sumerian king list, 
The basic source we have for talking about royalty includes only one female ruler, Kubaba of Kish, whom it characterizes as a quote-unquote brothel keeper. That description tells us a lot about the gendered nature of royal power. There were queens and princesses who might be quite powerful in their own right, but they didn't rule, not like kings did. Royal power was inherently masculine. The king occupied a central ideological role in Mesopotamian society. Except in a couple of rare and generally later cases, he wasn't considered a god himself, not like the pharaohs in Egypt. But he stood between the people and the gods, and this made him godlike or maybe god-adjacent. He was chosen by the gods, in fact, and he was their representative on earth, the link between the everyday world and the divine one. The king renewed the links between the people and the gods on an annual basis through what's known as the sacred marriage, a specific form of ritual that bound the king and the ruling goddess, Inanna in Uruk, for example, together. By giving the gods their due, the king ensured that the agricultural bounty on which his people depended would be guaranteed by the gods. The king's essential role was as a provider, and in written sources, he's constantly depicted with signs of abundance, like sheaves of grain and storage jars. Everything else flowed from this, and it's what gave the king his legitimacy, his right to rule. This was the king's core role, and based on the plentiful images of royal propaganda we have, it's how the king wanted to be seen. I don't think there's any strong reason to think that the more common folk weren't invested in this belief system either. But beyond the kings, the gods were central to how the people of Mesopotamia understood themselves and their world, and even the identities of their cities. Each city had its own patron deity, with its temple, priests, priestesses, and property, who acted as a focus for the city's identity. Inanna was the patron goddess of Uruk, Nana Suen for Ur, and so on. In fact, the connection went even deeper than this. Enlil was the chief deity of Nippur, and the name of the city was written as Enlil's place. In the eyes of Mesopotamia's city dwellers, their home city was one of many studded across the region all of them equal in rank and considered to be fairly uniform in size, even if in reality some were much larger than others. And kingship, the leadership of a city, was understood to be divine in origin. The first line of the Sumerian king list, one of the fundamental written sources for this whole period, begins like this, quote, when kingship came down from heaven. This was not exactly true, obviously, because the institution of kingship evolved even over the course of the early dynastic period, it grew palaces, a multitude of functions, and came from a variety of different power bases, including the ownership of household wealth, even the management of temples. But we need to talk more about temples. Temples were far, far more than houses of worship. They weren't actually open to the public. The physical space of the temple building often occupied the highest point in the city, artificially raised up over and over and over to create an ever-higher landmark at the heart of Uruk, Lagash, Kish, and all the rest. A temple wasn't a singular building, but a place whose history went back and back into the distant reaches of a city's past, built up again and again. Ziggurats, the distinctive stepped pyramids that are so characteristic of Mesopotamia in this period, were simply the result of building upward to provide a platform for these temples at their peak. Remember, Mesopotamia is incredibly flat territory. It lacked many of the natural landmarks that might have served as a home for the gods elsewhere. And so the gods in Mesopotamia dwelled in man-made homes, and that of the city's patron god or goddess was the richest and best appointed of them all. Kings recorded their gifts to the gods and their building projects on the gods' behalf in writing. 
It was something they were proud of and wanted to broadcast to their people and anybody else who would listen, presumably including the gods themselves. A temple might be a single building, quite small in the earliest stages of Mesopotamian history at Eridu, but as time went on, they became larger and larger, whole complexes built around the dwelling place of the god. Now, that idea of a dwelling place was quite literal. The shrine contained an image of the god, a statue made in solemn and ceremonial fashion that carried great significance for its craftsmen, priests, and royal sponsors. The statue was maybe made of wood, but decorated with gold and other precious items. Many were shaped like people and seated on thrones, dressed in the finest articles of clothing their cities could produce. Others were more symbolic representations of the divine, like a standard. Worshippers might bring statues with their names to plead for the god's attention. Gifts were expected, like the sacrifice of a sheep, and the ritual specialists attached to the temple might take omens from the organs of the sacrificial animal. Now, over time, the gods accumulated far more material goods than their immediate needs required. They had more rich attire and jewelry than they could wear at any given time. One small temple of Ishtar at the city of Lagaba in a later period kept an inventory listing gold rings, a gold vulva, gold rods, gold dress pins, fleeced skirts, woven headbands, and much more. Those were just permanent holdings. Other offerings were distributed to the temple staff, both the offices concerned with actual cultic activities, what we'd consider priests, and those doing more mundane things like sweeping and guarding the doors. This made some of these positions quite valuable things to have. There were also regular offerings of perishable goods, food and the like, which could grow to an enormous scale and be redistributed beyond the temple staff to the general public. Kings dedicated their prisoners of war to the temple of a god. More humble folk might present people as well, mostly women and children based on the written sources we have. A city might have many temples, many houses of the gods, each with its different patrons. But with resources like these, the temple as an institution went far beyond the house of the god itself. Temples were powerful forces within Mesopotamian society, within and beyond the city-states where they dwelt. The movable wealth they held, like the gold rings and fine textiles owned by Ishtar's temple, were only the visible manifestations of far more wide-reaching holdings. They could own significant amounts of property— engage in commercial and agricultural activities like the raising of wool sheep and processing of textiles. Huge numbers of people might owe their labor to a temple. A temple might outright own dozens or hundreds of enslaved people. The best documented of these temples comes from the city of Lagash, toward the end of the early dynastic period. Its activities included the cultivation of grain, fruit trees and vegetables, and the maintenance of the irrigation systems that supplied them with water the management of large flocks of goats and sheep and herds of cattle, textile manufacturing, leatherworking, and, of course, trade with foreign lands. All of these activities were supported by huge amounts of labor, both from people whom the temple owned outright and those whose labor had been dedicated to it as an offering. With all of that going on, we can see why cuneiform writing was so necessary as an administrative technology. There was a lot to keep track of. In fact, temples were probably the primary patrons of the craft industries in the early dynastic period. Temples were exceptionally important institutions, tied to both the common people of their cities and the elites all the way up to the king. But it would be a mistake to view the temples, the gods, and the religious specialists who served them in purely material terms. 
There were a lot of them. They had functions that might not seem especially religious to us, but they had important jobs to do. Unseen forces lurked everywhere in the lives of ancient Mesopotamians. Disaster was always around the corner, whether in the form of a flood, a famine, or a rampaging army. Keeping the gods satisfied was essential work, not only on behalf of individuals with a request, but for the benefit of the whole community. Even in material terms, temples served many functions. They might hand out grain to the hungry or support children whose families couldn't afford to keep them. The gods resided in temples and had done so since the very beginnings of urbanism in Mesopotamia. The temples got bigger, but the principle remained pretty much the same. Palaces, however, and their occupants, kings, seemed to have been a newer innovation, one that belonged to the early dynastic period we've been discussing today. Early on, city rulers in southern Mesopotamia probably just resided in temples. We have no real reason to assume that there was any separation between religious and secular authority. That's the case at Uruk, for example, with its massive Ayana district and its temple complexes. Palaces only came later, and they tend to be located toward the edges of cities rather than in the center, where the temples usually were. Now, that wasn't so true in the cities of northern Mesopotamia. Their temples were less central, palaces were an earlier development, kingship was a bit different there, and in neighboring Syria, which shared many similar trends. But what about the people who lived in these cities, who worshipped these gods, were commanded by the kings, whose labor and produce was enumerated in cuneiform documents? What can we say about them? Well, one thing we can say for certain is that this was a pretty diverse world. There were at least two languages in regular written use throughout the region. Sumerian, a language isolate unrelated to any other known tongues, and Akkadian, a Semitic language distantly related to Hebrew, Arabic, and Aramaic, among others. If they were written, it's a safe bet that they were spoken, with Akkadian apparently more common further to the north in Mesopotamia and Sumerian to the south but we can safely assume that a lot of people would have been bilingual. There were Elamites from Western Iran and Eblaites, another Semitic-speaking group from what is today Syria, among many others. Prisoners of war brought back from expeditions near and far were a common sight, especially women and children. More than anything, we can be sure that people in Mesopotamian cities worked. This isn't to reduce them to mere economic agents. It's that what we can know about them on the basis of the sources left to us almost always fall into that category. Individuals are identified in written texts by their occupation. Weaver, woodworker, potter, miller, beer brewer, swineherder, peasant, merchant, manager in a palace household, and so on. Temple records broke people down into labor classes based on age and gender, depending on the kind of work they could be expected to do. Other texts defined one person as belonging to another, a kind of a patronage tie, often associated with a ruler or a specific powerful household. We can assume that individuals and households worked for themselves, that there was something like a private sector of activity, but we just don't actually know much about it. This has led some scholars to assume that there was actually little or no private activity before around 2000 BC, that everything was in what we might think of as the public domain. But that's going too far. It's better to assume that it's simply out of the view of our available sources. That's because private economic activity has almost no presence in the written sources, which were almost always administrative, institutional documents connected to temples and palaces and the like. 
we can say far more about this institutional economy, the economy centered on temples and palaces and important households, because the people associated with those institutions wrote about it. We have the clay tablets covered in cuneiform writing, hundreds, occasionally thousands of them, detailed glimpses into everything from a vast textile business to land transactions. Our whole understanding of the world of this early dynastic period is defined by the nature of the records we have available to us. This doesn't mean institutional activity wasn't central to the economy and to Mesopotamian life. It probably was. It's just that it can't have been everything. The households of the kings, their relatives, other elites, and of course the temples directed this institutional activity. If we want to actually understand Mesopotamia and the people who lived there, this concept of the household is key. Now, when we talk about household, I'm not talking about a single nuclear family, people living under one roof. The term had far broader meaning. There was no conceptual division between secular and religious or public and private. A commoner might belong to a domestic household sitting at the bottom of the hierarchy, but that household would be contained within the household of a temple institution. At the very top, the ruler's household was all-encompassing, stretching over the entirety of the lives and property contained within his city-state. His state, such as it existed, was patrimonial. It was a family affair. It belonged to him and his household, and his people were sons of the palace. Workshops might be located on the grounds of a temple complex or in the outer bits of a palace, literally within the bounds of that institutional household. The institution sourced the raw materials, it directed the labor of the dependent craftspeople who made the items, and then distributed the final products to their destinations. These were the everyday activities, but the state could also direct much larger products, because it could secure vast amounts of labor to suit its needs. Building walls, constructing public buildings, digging massive irrigation ditches, fighting in wars, and so on. When working on these projects, the workers would be paid in kind, with grain, oil, clothing, and so on. These are the kinds of things we can see in these administrative, institutional sources. Mesopotamia had a long history of communal labor projects involving enslaved people, dependent workers, and free citizens, all of them directed by this central authority of the state. The anthropologist David Graeber defined early states as systems for the institutionalized extortion of labor. And I don't think he was wrong about that, especially where Mesopotamia was concerned. Every person in a Mesopotamian city existed in this hierarchical web, tied to their social betters and most likely to powerful institutions that controlled their labor. These affiliations weren't necessarily permanent, but they were defining. They might go to work within the walls of a temple complex, spinning thread or weaving cloth from the wool of sheep maintained in the countryside by other laborers bound to the temple. They might be slaves, captured in a war and taken back to the city, their presence broadcast in the king's boasting public inscription, then put to work building a new palace. Surveyors and architects watched over them, marking out the dimensions of the building, calculating the number of mud bricks necessary to construct it. They might be agricultural folk out in the countryside beyond the city walls, harvesting grain from the fields belonging to the queen's household, delivering grain under the watchful eye of a scribe who recorded the quantities with strokes of his stylus onto a wet clay tablet. They might be soldiers, at least temporarily, carrying a shield and a spear into battle against the king's enemies from the next city over, then marching the defeated prisoners back into captivity at home. Work, mediated through the institutions of the various households, temple or royal or what have you, is what we can see. 
It's just that what we can say about their lives even after the advent of the written word is limited to what we can see. Our sources are little shafts of light in the general darkness of a lost past. We should always be aware of what remains just out of sight. Was there more to their lives? Of course there was. They were human just like we are. Next time on Tides of History, we'll move from work to the stuff we more traditionally associate with history, even history of this earliest type. Kings, wars, conquests, and the emergence of what we can call the world's first empire, under the rule of Sargon of Akkad. Until then, thanks for joining me. I've written a book called The Verge, Reformation, Renaissance, and 40 Years That Shook the World. It comes out on July 20th, but you can pre-order a hard copy, ebook, or audiobook that I'm reading, naturally, from your distributor of choice right now. There's a link in this episode description that will take you there. Be sure and hit me up if you'd like to chat about anything we've talked about on Tides or something you'd like to see. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman, on Facebook at Patrick Wyman MMA, or on Instagram at Wyman underscore Patrick. I write on a variety of topics, including prehistory, at patrickwyman.substack.com. Tides of History is written and narrated by me, Patrick Wyman. Sound design by Molly Bach for Airship. The sound engineer is Sergio Enriquez. Tides of History is produced by Morgan Jaffe. From Wondery, the executive producers are Jenny Lower beckman and Marshall Luby. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, from Wondery, this has been Tides of History. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow Tides of History on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen early and ad-free. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate it if you left us a five-star rating and a review. Hey there, I'm Anders Kalto. And I'm Tiffany Oshinsky. We're the hosts of The Lead. The Lead is a daily sports podcast from Wondery and The Athletic. Every weekday, we dive into one of the biggest or most fascinating sports stories of the day, as told by a reporter who's covering that story up close. For the next few weeks, we're turning our attention to the race for gold in Japan. We'll be telling the stories of incredible athletes like Simone Biles, Katie Ledecky, and 17-year-old sprinter Arian Knighton. And we'll look at some complicated issues, like how the Olympics decides who is and isn't a woman, and why, despite so much public opposition, the Japanese government has insisted that the games must go on. You can follow The Lead on Amazon Music, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Or, to listen on your Alexa-enabled device, just say, Alexa, play The Lead Podcast. The Lead, sports up close, all in about 15 minutes each day.